Hey guys, my name is Dante Stack, your long-suffering host, and this is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. Today we are in the middle of, or I don't know if I should say middle, we're somewhere in the midst of, ah, in the midst of the God, Psalm 82, in the midst of a sub-series I've entitled God of Gods, which looks at the idea that God surrounded himself or has surrounded himself with a divine council. And that divine council is called Elohim, the same word that we often use to describe God as. So, in essence, or at least in a partially true way, we can call these fellow divine beings in God's council gods. Now, we maintain, of course, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the God of gods. He is the creator God. He is in his own echelon. He is above all else. But if we branch out our definition of the word God, as it appears that the Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament themselves do, then we are left with this interesting question of, who are these other gods? Who is in this divine council? How does that inform the Bible and redemptive history in general? And so far we've looked at the intersection of the names of God, the names of angels, and the role or definition of the word angels in the Old and New Testaments. Then we broke down the classes of sons of God, sons of Elohim, and sons of man, and are looking at it as, okay, God's created two families or two uh, lines of existence, two realms, the realm of man and the realm of Elohim. And then we looked at Deuteronomy 32 and what appears to be the Tower of Babel where God gave the nations unto the Elohim so that the Elohim had some sort of role of lordship over the nations of the earth. All right, you with me? That roughly brings us up to today. Now, if you'll notice, my approach here today is not the usual high energy Dante that hopefully you've become accustomed to. Right now, I'm sipping on a cup of joe. <laughs> And taking it a little easier. For one, it's just more my mood today. And two, this episode is a dividing point. I think, I hope, I've made a case that whether you buy into what I'm saying or not, you have to give what I'm saying, if you're uh, a believer in the Bible, some real weight to, to my arguments here. Because they've all been biblically based. And really, we've stayed within the context of the Bible itself. But here's the dividing line. While it's fun to create this whole theology based on these little verses here and there and these weird moments in scripture, it's hard to build a succinct narrative, a whole theology, because it's not the point of the Bible. The Bible isn't stressing the story of the Elohim. It's stressing the story of Yahweh interacting to redeem mankind. The Bible is the story of Jesus and Jesus coming as a son of man and a son of Elohim. It's not a story of Elohim and all the weird stuff that Elohim do. But we're left with these weird instances, these little few sentences here and there in the Bible, where it seems to point to weird stories of Elohim. And sometimes those weird stories of Elohim seem to be fully fleshed out, or more fleshed out, talked about ad nauseum in books, in writings that aren't in the Bible, often aren't even in Mesopotamia. So, this is the dividing line. Because every episode of 365 Honest Questions needs to have a question premise, the question today is how many dots should we connect? And this is 
an open-ended question, and it's going to be totally up to you. So I'm going to make some outrageous claims like I invented the question mark today. And my point is not to say, hey, believe this, 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 and this. My point is not to make a complete orthodox case for each of these little connecting dots I'm about to make. My point is, there is a narrative that can work by connecting these dots. And that narrative is seducing in a way. Now, should I embrace that narrative? I'm probably not the guy to do that. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. Maybe you connect half of these dots and say, well, it's close enough to looking like a bear with an umbrella. We'll call that a bear with an umbrella. I don't have to connect those other dots. Or maybe you only connect three of those dots and you're like, I don't see that bear with an umbrella in that constellation, man. That's just three dots in the sky. How is that friggin' Orion slaying the behemoth in the sky? It's not. It's just three stars, dude. Whatever. So, for your listening pleasure and hopefully listening curiosity, here are 20 dots that we could connect dealing with the Elohim, starting with the crazy story of the Nephilim, or Nephilim. And, fair warning, we're not really going to deal with the Nephilim much today. We're dealing with the sons of God, the Elohim, once again. We'll have to do deeper dives specifically with the Nephilim on a later date. It's not our cup de jour. Alright, here we go. 20 dots. Are you willing to connect them? Let's find out. straight out of Genesis 6, and if you're at all into Bible conspiracies, you know this passage. I'll just read the first four verses. There's more context, and I should dive into that context more, but we just don't have time today. I probably should say that about every dot and every piece of scripture and sentence we read out of any old artifact today, uh, but I'm not going to. Just know we're only skimming the surface of every point here, every dot, every 20 dots. So we got to go through this stuff relatively quickly. Forgive me for not adding more context. Anywho, Genesis 6, 1 through 4. This is right before Noah and the flood. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord, that's Yahweh, said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay. 
Dot number one. Divine beings, members of this divine council of God, seemingly, or at least divine beings, mated, had intercourse with, reproduced with women. That's dot number one. Now, I'll say right off the bat, there, in general, is two thoughts on this passage. One thought says, the sons of God should not be translated as angels or Elohim. That here, in this context, is talking about people from the non-Sethian line. So, Adam has some sons. One of those sons is Seth. Noah is a descendant of Seth, the righteous line. There are non-Sethite people wandering the world. Some of them are rulers, and some people equate sons of God or equate Elohim, the word Elohim, with this catch-all phrase for rulers, meaning men could be Elohim. And therefore, this is talking about more or less cross-racial type of mating, or at least international breeding. (laughs) I do reject that, and I think there are a great many reasons to reject that notion. We'll start with maybe not the place you would think I would start with. I think Paul endorses this line of thought. Dot number two on our connect the dot bear umbrella picture here (laughs) is that Paul also believes that the sons of Elohim mated and had children with women. And of course, my evidence for this comes from at least one of Paul's top three most controversial statements. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 through 10, Paul is essentially making a case for the roles of women and men and the relationship between the sexes. And he says this, starting in verse 6, For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. And he goes on from there to continue to make his point. But he left in that weird, super weird little clause. That is, a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, why do I connect this dot with Genesis 6? Because of dot number 3, the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs. This is a pseudopigraphal book likely written sometime in the intertestamental period. So, we see an explosion of non-canonical books and writings between 400 BC and the time of Christ. And, And really, though... It's more like between 180 B.C. and 60 B.C. or therein. This 80-90 year period just is blooming with texts, many of which we have pieces of or fragments of, most often because when we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran Essene Jews were really good at collecting books. And this was the main time period that they were, you know, the big guys hiding out in the forest the big guys in the desert. So they were collecting all these manuscripts, threw them in a cave. 2,000 years later, we find them. So pieces of this Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs was found. Now this book either pretends or is a memory of 
writings by the 12 sons of Jacob, right? These are the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the Testament of Reuben, there's this sentence. Command your daughters and wives not to make beautiful their heads and faces, because each wife cheating on her husband will be punished, as it was them who seduced guards before the deluge. Did you catch that? Women should be punished if they cheat, and they shouldn't make their heads and faces beautiful because of that time way back in the past when they seduced guards before the deluge. What's the deluge? The flood. The term here, guards, is another one of those weird terms that can also often be associated with the divine council. So this Hebrew writing, dating, you know, 150 to 180 B.C., surely was circulating around in Paul's time. Even if no one gave it any credence, people knew about it. And Paul seems to be referencing that when he's writing here in 1 Corinthians. Still not buying it? Well, how about dot four? This is the more concrete and specific reference. The book of Jude. Specifically here, the dot should be titled, if you're writing down the names of each of these dots, Jude believes that angels, or Elohim, mated with women. I'll start reading from verse 5 of Jude. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What? Did you catch that? Jude just called Jesus as the one who saved the people out of Egypt, and was the one who killed the firstborn. Now, remember back in Exodus, who is it that kills the firstborn? It's the angel of the Lord. Now, we've already associated the angel of the Lord with Jesus, and here Jude makes that connection explicit. Moving on, verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he, that being Jesus, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So he doesn't come out and directly say that angels slept with women, but he says they're being locked up in chains in gloomy darkness, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. We know Sodom and Gomorrah and we know about their sin. The angels' sin was of the same ilk, that being sexual impropriety. That seems open and shut to me. Elohim, sons of Elohim, mated with women. Bada bing, bada boom. All right, dot number five. This is kind of out of left field, and we're not going to touch on it any more than having this dot on our map. Uh, but I have to bring it up because we're in Jude. I'll just read, continuing on from what we just finished in verse seven. Jude continues in verse eight. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Who are the glorious ones? Who are the glorious ones? Who are the glorious ones? It's another mystery word, but I would contend that's another word for the divine council, the Elohim, the gods. Verse 9, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. <laughs> what? That's not in the Pentateuch. That's nowhere else in the Bible that Michael fought with the devil over Moses' body? That is bizarre. We're not going to pick up that string today, but that's another weird dot on our line. It's also a weird dot because of what it seems to be referencing, being a non-canonical work, but we'll hit on that in just a little bit. Going back, going back to Genesis 6, dot number 6, 
is this simple statement. Nephilim, whoever they are, or the progeny are the descendants of the mating between gods and people. They are, for lack of a better term, demigods. Now, for future reference, not this episode, but hopefully a later God of Gods episode if we ever get to it, the term Nephilim, we could also throw in the term Raphaim and Sons of Anak. But, again, we'll deal with that hopefully on another episode. But all that's to say, just there seem to be other terms that are talking about the same people group or demigod lineage. Dot number seven, the Nephilim are giants. Physical giants, as in taller than the average men, as in physically large. How large? Uh, Again, not a topic for today, nor do I particularly care. But Genesis 6, again, says this. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, so that Hebrew word for mighty men who were of old, these men of renown, that's a particular Hebrew word. It shows up again in Ezekiel. Now again, no time for context, but Ezekiel says this uh, when he's talking about judgment specifically. Starting in Ezekiel 32, verse 26, Meshech Tubal. Now, Tubal is an interesting word that shows up as kind of a last name in Genesis quite often. Um, But enough about that. Meshech Tubal is there, and all her multitude, her graves all around it, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword, for they spread their terror in the land of the living. And they do not lie with the mighty, the fallen from among the uncircumcised, who went down to Sheol with their weapons of war. Going on and on and on, talks about that. But this word in English that is translated as mighty is the same Hebrew word for the mighty men that is in Genesis 6 that is associated with the Nephilim, or that the Nephilim are called. But here's the interesting twist on this. And here's where you really have to connect a dot in a way, because it's kind of a non-biblical idea. Well, it is biblical, but it ain't. (laughs) The Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, supposedly done by 70 Hebrew scholars, 70 Jewish people, hence the Greek word Septuagint, meaning 70. And once again, it's the Old Testament translation from Hebrew into Greek. But when those translators looked at this passage, they translated this word mighty as gigantes, giants, the giants of old. Now, there's a few other reasons why we could perceive these demigods as giants, but I'll leave that there for now because we have to move on. That was dot seven, that the Nephilim are giants. Dot eight, Peter, the apostle Peter, also believed that the Elohim, the sons of Elohim, mated with women in what I think is my favorite book of the Bible. Peter has a weird discussion about these very angels. He says this, I'll give you a little more context this time, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, 
and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Okay, it goes on from there. And let me just add one verse later, verse 17 in chapter 2. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Okay, so there were a lot of things in there. But again, connecting angels with Sodom and Gomorrah seems to be a big deal, seems to be the point. And again, an emphasis here in Second Peter of defiling the flesh. Peter's counseling these people, hey, don't give in to these bad dudes that are coming amongst your church and convincing you to go, like, have orgies and stuff. That's defiling the flesh. That road leads to destruction, like Sodom and Gomorrah, and like the angels. Okay, dot nine I actually already introduced, and that's, once again, just like in Jude, Peter talks about these people who are willing to blaspheme the glorious ones. Plural, the glorious ones. Not the glorious one, not Yahweh, but these other creatures that are deserved of the term glorious. That's very interesting, but not as interesting as the idea of hell that Peter introduces here. And it's interesting because the word that we translate as hell is not the typical word that usually in Greek we use to call hell. It's the word Tartarus. Now, that probably means something to you. Tartarus shows up all the time in Greek mythology. And in Greek mythology, it's not just hell. It's not just perdition. It's not just the place where you go to be condemned. It's a place specifically made for the Titans. Now, some of the earliest writings we have of Greek mythology come from the Greek writer Hesiod. And he wrote a big book called The Theogony, which tells all about the Greek gods. It's one of the main sources we get for Greek mythology. And in the Theogony, lines 713 through 725 say this, Cotus and Briareus and Gaius, insatiate for war, raised fierce fighting. Three hundred rocks, one upon another, they launched from their strong hands and overshadowed the titans with their missiles. They buried them beneath the wide-pathed earth and bound them in bitter chains when they had conquered them by their strength for all their great spirit, as far beneath the earth, to Tartarus. A brazen anvil falling from earth nine nights and days would reach Tartarus upon the tenth. So the story is essentially the titans were evil, they did too much bad stuff, and so there was a war on the titans, and when they were finally defeated, they were shackled and cast into this deep, deep, dark pit, which Hesiod says is... Ten days deep within the earth, a place of deep darkness. Homer in the Iliad says this. This is in chapter 8 of the Iliad, lines 14 through 16. 
Murky Tartarus, far, far away, where is the deepest gulf beneath the earth? The gates whereof are of iron and the threshold of bronze, as far beneath Hades as heaven is above earth. Right? Okay, so you catch that? Hades, the term for, you know, Greek afterlife, often what we describe as hell in English. Homer's saying Tartarus is below Hades. Tartarus is below hell. As far beneath Hades as heaven is above earth, then shall ye know how far the mightiest am I of all the gods. So that's dots 11 and 12, is that Hesiod's Tartarus describes a place for the Titans, as does Homer's Iliad. All right, you with me so far? It's just kind of weird that we're talking about angels, and we're talking about angels being cast into this one specific type of hell, and that seems to line up with the description of the Titans, these Greek god-like creatures, being cast into a specific type of hell, that being Tartarus. Now, I don't want to waste time in showing you the verbatimness, but just take my word for it if you're not acquainted with them, or read them, because dot 13 here on our Connect the Dot board is that Peter and Jude are almost verbatim, specifically when they're talking about this judgment stuff. Now, why is that important? Well, move on over to dot 14, which is that Jude quotes a non-canonical book from Jewish lore called the Book of Enoch, or more correctly, First Enoch. Verses 14 and 15 of Jude say this, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone, and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way, and all of the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's a quote from the book of Enoch. Now, what is the book of Enoch about? Well, it's a crazy, 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 crazy book. Um, but the gist of it is, a large portion of the book of Enoch deals with the angelic realm, the divine council, these angelic figures, and specifically, this Genesis 6 story of angels going out of their dominion, intermixing with men and women. There's this story about how the angels taught men's certain arts and crafts and sciences. And so, long story short, if you're looking for a book that completely explains what the heck the angels did to fall and why there are, you know, things like demons in the world, the Book of Enoch is going to answer your questions in this crazy, crazy narrative. And it's also going to tell you about God and where he sits in heaven and there's going to be crazy descriptions. It's bonkers. And it supposedly is attributed to Enoch. This weird little figure in Genesis shows up in Genesis 5, listed in the brief rundown Generations of Adam, Genesis chapter 5. And Enoch is just said that he was righteous, and after a long while, he was nowhere to be found because he was walking with God. Like it says he didn't die, essentially. Now it seems unlikely that Enoch wrote the book of Enoch because we don't see anybody in the Old Testament talking about it or referencing the book of Enoch or saying, yeah, we got the books of Moses and the book of Enoch. No one talks about that. So that seems like a big oversight. Most likely, it's another one of these pseudopigraphal writings that came to explode in the intertestamental period, because from that point on, we see references to it a lot. But it's interesting and eyebrow-raising that Jude says, Enoch says such and such, and then we have that quote in the book of Enoch. 
But I want to read a few verses from Enoch here that are parallel to the things we see in Jude and Second Peter. Here's Enoch 1.9. And behold, he comes with the myriads of the holy to pass judgment upon them, and he will destroy the impious, and will call to account all flesh for everything the sinners and the impious have done and committed against him. That seems to be the parallel to what you just quoted. Real quick, let me read these two verses in Second Peter and Jude to set up what Enoch says. Recall, 2 Peter 2.4 says, For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Jude 6 says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. First Enoch 12.4 says, Go and make known to the watchers of heaven, watchers is a big key word that still we don't have time to talk about, because it's dots that... Give us another picture, another picture that I don't have time to talk about today. I feel like this whole episode is just me saying I don't have time to talk about this right now. (laughs) Anyway, go and make known to the watchers of heaven who have abandoned the high heaven, the holy eternal place, and have defiled themselves with women. Ding, ding, ding. That seems pretty straightforward. Here's 1 Enoch 15, 3 through 7. For what reason have you abandoned the high, holy, and eternal heaven? and slept with women and defiled yourselves with the daughters of the people. I did not make wives for you, for the proper dwelling place of spiritual beings of heaven is heaven. I believe that is God speaking in that context. Here's First Enoch chapter 10, verses 4 through 7. And again, the Lord said to Raphael, that's one of the good angels, for lack of a better word, one of the good Elohim, bind Azazel hand and foot and cast him into the darkness and make an opening in the desert, which is in Dudael, and cast him therein and place upon him rough and jagged rocks, and cover him with darkness, and let him abide there forever, and cover his face that he may not see light. And on the great day of judgment he shall be cast into the fire. A few verses later, Bind Simjaja and the others who are with him, who fornicated with the women, that they will die together with them in all their defilement. Bind them for seventy generations, underneath the rocks of the ground, until the day of their judgment, and on their consummation, until the eternal judgment is concluded. Dot number 15, I have to mention too. Bind Azazel hand and foot and cast him into the darkness and make an opening in the desert. The second episode we ever did was looking at the goat the Jewish people are to give to Azazel. Right? Um, It's part of the Levitical law. You take two goats, you sacrifice one to Yahweh, and the other one, the high priest holds on to the head of that goat and speaks all the sins of Israel onto that goat, and then casts that goat into the desert to give unto Azazel. Well, here we have Azazel, and he is a fallen angel. He is an Elohim that has slept with women. Weird. And it potentially brings up the idea, again, that the Elohim are gods in the more traditional sense, because in a way, the Israelites are sacrificing one goat to Yahweh and one goat to Azazel. What does it mean? What does it mean? Dot 16 comes from one more little line from the book of Enoch. First Enoch, chapter 20, verse 2. Uriel, one of the holy angels, who is over the whole world and over Tartarus. Uriel then goes out and performs duties for God and specifically binds the fallen angels and puts them in Tartarus. So, according to Enoch, there is... An Elohim, a good Elohim, that God has assigned to Tartarus. Keep that in mind. Dot 17. 
there's this really weird book. It's called the Sibylline or Sibylline Oracles. You remember the Sibyls? They were the chaste virgins who the Greeks would ask for prophecies from. Well, supposedly they had all these oracles from the Sibyllines or Sibyllines. Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that. Written down. But by the time Rome was Christianized, the original copies of those oracles were already long destroyed. But there were fragments of them. And those fragments were syncretized, I guess you would say. Twisted to either be Christianese, like Christian pagan, or just straight up still pagan, or often also Gnostic pagan. In other words, scribes, writers were infusing the philosophies and the religions of the times into these oracles. And we see a great number of the Christian patriarchs, the forefathers of the faith, quoting or alluding to these oracles. Augustine quotes them. Um, so they seem to have matured in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd century AD. So lines 280 to 290 of what we have from the Sibylline Oracles says this, And then shall Uriel, mighty angel, break the bolts of stern and lasting adamant, which, monstrous, bold the brazen gates of Hades, straight cast them down, and unto judgment lead all forms that have endured much suffering, chiefly the shapes of titans born of old, and giants, and all whom the deluge whelmed, and all that perished in the billowy seas, and all that furnished banquet for the beasts and creeping things and fowls. These in a mass shall Uriel summon to the judgment seat. Alright, so here's what we got so far. According to Peter and Jude, these fallen angels were cast into gloomy darkness until the final judgment. Synthesize that with Genesis 6, and it seems like it's telling a story of the Elohim, the sons of God that mated with women, are the ones that are cast into the specific gloomy darkness until the final judgment. Take that word Tartarus, and we now have gods who mated with women are cast into the specific place deep in the earth until final judgment. And according to Enoch, there's one specific angel, Uriel, that is guard over that pit. Dot 18. Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Revelation 11.7 says this, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. All this adds up to final judgment. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold onto the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him. Couldn't that be Uriel? Doesn't that sound like Uriel? The angel who has the keys to Tartarus? Bottomless pit, that sounds an awful lot like... A pit that's ten days deep into the earth, as Hesiod and Homer speak of? Could it be that the titans and the giants and the gods of Greek myth are the ramifications, are the echoes, are the reverberations of the true sons of God who mated with men? Is, is that a possibility? That titans are our fallen angels? There are other books. There's the Book of Jubilees, another one of these Jewish... Apocryphal books seems to come out the same sort of time period, 200, 150 BC, 
that has a whole theology about angels and and ranks them. I'm I'm not super familiar with the book. I've only read it in pieces, so I, I didn't want to bring it full into the picture today. But there's that. There's also apparently too the book of Jasher speaks to the sons of God mating with the daughters of Eve. Daughters of Adam. <laughs> so that could be dot nineteen. Dot twenty is just there's so much else out there that we could connect in. The Epic of Gilgamesh, which we have in Babylonian, and we also have fragments or pieces of it in Sumerian. Sumerian being the oldest cuneiform language written that we think there ever was. The oldest language on Earth, as far as written word goes, we think is Sumerian, and the Epic of Gilgamesh is in it. And the Epic of Gilgamesh talks about a great worldwide flood. There's also various other parallels that seem to mimic or have similar ideas as to what we see come across specifically in Genesis. If you let your mind accept this idea of Nephilim and this idea that maybe the sons of God did stuff with people and that created some sort of weird half-breed system, all of a sudden your mind is open to accepting, you know, these Egyptian gods that we see on pyramid walls and stuff that have like the face of a falcon and the body of a human, minotaurs from Greek myth. All of a sudden, we can start thinking, hey, are, are these the demigods? Hercules. Hercules is a demigod. A mighty man of old. A man of renown. All these other myths from other cultures and other areas, could they be echoes of the original story? See, all this is getting at is I used to really fear syncretism. I used to really fear the idea of biblical stories showing up in other cultures because to me... It just came down to the bottom line of whichever one is the oldest has to be the right one. So it's just as likely that the Bible's borrowing from the Epic of Gilgamesh than it is the Epic of Gilgamesh is borrowing from the Bible. So it's scary. It was scary to me in that regard. But now I'm thinking maybe all these things, it's it's like an echo chamber. And we're getting reverberations of truth out there. But over time in, in different cultures and different societies, those reverberations are expanded or contracted or filled in differently. And from our perspective, you can't make heads or tails of what's truth and what's not, as far as those reverberations go. But it starts making you look at those mythologies of other cultures a little differently. It's like, have you seen recently, there's been some good work done. Uh, I think they did this with Star Wars, the new Star Wars movie uh, of The Force Awakens as opposed to Star Wars A New Hope. The original trailers for both of those. Or no, I, I think they did it with Star Wars, A Force Awakens, and now the new Star Wars that's coming out this year, uh, The Last Jedi, I believe. The trailers, like, mimic each other visually. They're almost in sync, like, shot for shot. They're exploring the same ideas in the trailer, in the two-minute trailer. They're visual companions. And they did the same thing with Blade Runner, right? After 30 years, they're remaking Blade Runner. Blade Runner 2046. And I saw this YouTube video or whatever where they showed both of them simultaneously, one on top of the other. And they're shot for shot the same. Just obviously one's updated and one has young Harrison Ford and one has old Harrison Ford. But they're visually echoing each other. Maybe syncretism's like that. One doesn't refute the other. They're not waging war on truth. They're just playing around with the same source material. And they're playing around a little differently. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. How many of these dots should I connect? I, I don't know. Maybe maybe none of them. It does seem silly to like look at a Minotaur and be like, Dude, Minotaur, buddy old pal, you might actually be real. All this time I just thought you were a little labyrinth monster, but turns out you're actually a demigod, a Nephilim, 
Cool, cool, cool beans. Like, that seems silly to do that. But again, I'm reminded that we have a lot of pride when looking at the past, and I think we assume too much about what the past was. Specifically, when we don't have good written records. But anywho, you can connect as many of those dots as you want or don't want. It's, it's just a fascinating rabbit hole to go down. I want to end with one more quote from Second Peter. This is Second Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, so long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. 4. We do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's saying, look, these aren't just tall tales. These aren't second-hand accounts. I saw these things. I was there. My senses intook Jesus. I know these things are true. And I think, I think that's the difference between biblical stories and the reverberations. The reverberations aren't really concerned with the truth. But the Bible is. This is Dante Stack signing out. Peace be the journey.